ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we are going to be talking today about a topic that, uh, amazingly, we have never hit on in the almost nine years that we've been doing this show. We are going to be talking about doing business in a family-owned company. And our guest today is Kathy Colby. She is one of the co-authors of a book called Business is Business, Reality Checks for Family-Owned Companies. Kathy, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Well, as you know, this show is called The Game Changer. And I think one of the interesting things about this whole topic of family-owned businesses is families tend to get in business and stay in business, you know, sometimes for, you know, decades and generations. And so game changing isn't normally something that you would be talking about in the context of family business because it's more about carrying on traditions. So this is a little bit of a break from uh, from what we normally talk about, but uh, you are definitely known as a thought leader and that is what we like to have on The Game Changer. So, Kathy, why don't you give our listeners a, a thumbnail into who you are before we dig into talking about the book. Let's talk about you, what you've done in your, your career and in your life, and, and how you came to write this book. Well, some people would say I'm eccentric. I always <laughs> thought when I was younger that would be a great thing to be called when I was older, and I, I'm not so sure now that I'm called that. Although, yeah, I like it because I'm definitely a game changer. I'm out there trying to make a difference. And you can't make a difference if you don't like shake things up. So I do that a lot. And the things I try to shake up are misperceptions, mythologies, biases, um, people's false assumptions. And there's so much of that going around. What I've found over the years, and I'm 77 and proud of it, um, I have found that the business I started 40 years ago doesn't run much differently today than it did when it began because people are people. And my whole emphasis is on understanding what makes people tick. I'm known as the thought leader in the field of human instincts. That's mm. my specialty. I know how to measure human instincts. I've developed assessment tools that are used around the globe to do that. In fact, there are 180-some countries in which my work is being used. So I'm out there trying to help people do what they're meant to do with their lives and to do it in a productive and fun way. Sounds terrific. So tell me a little bit about your co-author, Amy, because I know she's not 70. (laughs) No. No, Amy is my stepdaughter. And some odd – I'll tell you a fun little story – Fun now, anyway. <laughs> Amy is one of three kids, and I married their dad. He's He was a widower, and I was single. We met and very quickly fell in love, and our kids were we five kids. Four were in college out of state, so we called each one up to tell them we were getting married, and Amy hung up on us. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we story. got started. 
And oh, now, wow. Now this beautiful young woman and brilliant young woman is president of the company I founded. Her dad started working in the company, which I'd, I founded it 12 years before he came into it. So I didn't start a family business. It's just that family members turned out to be the perfect people to help me do what I was trying to do. My husband had been an international banker, but he just couldn't stand not being a part of what I was up to. So he got involved. Then um, Amy was the next family member, oddly. She went on from being the college girl she was when we first made that call and was married to a professional baseball player, was living separately when he's out uh, traveling. She was alone. It's not that they were separated. It's that he was on the road a lot with the team, so she would be home alone. She had a ghastly, horrible adventure one night when she was accosted in her parking area. We brought her home. I said, Amy... You need a chance to just kind of relax and get over that, and uh, you can stay with us, and you can work in my business for the next 90 days, just giving yourself a chance to get back at it, because she'd been in a very great job. Well, about five days later, after she had started work, I said one night, Amy, would you go get um, a match and a needle? And she looked at me strange and went off and got it and came back. I said, okay, now use the flame to sterilize the needle. Poke your finger, prick it and get a little blood. And then I want you to write in blood, I will never leave Colby Corp. (laughs) Good for you. And she is the president and she is incredibly wonderful. So we wrote the book together, laughing through our stories and everything in that book is the reality and so many of our clients are family businesses so we have over 2,000 companies from which we could take stories it's fun but it's also frightening to be in business with family the every odd that you have all of the percentages of success and failure are just so much more magnified and scary because it's double jeopardy Absolutely. Well, I have to tell you a little bit. I've got a couple of angles on this story, and uh, this may be why my producer thought this would be a good one for me, but she doesn't know about this story. So I get contacted by uh, someone in the travel industry. You know, I've spent my entire adult life in the travel industry, and she was looking for someone who would help her really write their business plan and and ultimately help them get to the next level, which, you know, that's what I did uh, in my consulting firm. So so we talked a bit and, you know, exchanged a a number of things, and and, uh, I agreed to fly out to Denver, uh, where the company was based, and um, she said, well, my CFO is going to come and pick you up, and I thought, okay, great, so you know, this woman picks me up, and, and as we're driving, she's talking to me in a really familiar way about uh, this woman uh, who was the CEO of the company about her children, and I had never met her children. In fact, I'm not even sure I knew their names, but but it was it was just a very odd conversation, and then we get down to the office, and, you know, she introduces me um, to um, the guy who was acting as as her chief legal advisor, and then in walks the guy who's the head of sales, and and they were all introduced just by their first names, and 
we start the meeting, and I had never in my life seen a company where the people treated each other the way that they were treating each other and talking to each other. Well, at the first break, the CFO says to me, you do know that I'm her mom, right? And it's like, bing, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> light goes on. And then I realize that the, the guy in sales and business development is the brother-in-law, the, the <laughs> chief technical officer is the husband. And so when they all came back in after the break, I said, listen, guys, I just have to tell you that I am so relieved to find out that you're all related because I had never, ever experienced you know, people talking to each other the way that you've been talking to each other, and now it makes total sense. And and we all laughed, and then we went on from there. And so that was really my first introduction to a family-owned company. And uh, I just recently uh, finished uh, a consulting engagement with, with a, a very large travel industry company that used to be family-owned, and now they've got um, uh, financial uh, backing by a private equity company, and but they still have a lot of those vestiges of that family-owned business. Um, so let's start out talking uh, about the book itself, and and so you begin the book by talking about something called sustainable success, and and I in my introduction of this said that a lot of family-owned businesses are generational. Uh, family businesses. So are you talking about that or are you talking about the kind of business you ended up in, which kind of everybody happened to pull together and and be related? Well, I'm definitely talking about trying to take a family business, no matter how it starts, into the next generations for as long as you all want it to be. Actually, the numbers in terms of success into the next generations don't look good for family businesses. Only 15% of family businesses make it into the third generation. Really? Yeah, it's not good. And a lot of the reasons for that is just the kind of thing you talked about is it's uncomfortable sometimes for other people, especially non-family members who are employees, to sit in those meetings where family members are telling personal kinds of stories or or there's body language among them that makes other people uncomfortable that you know something I don't know. So in the book, <laughs> right. we very much talk about don't do that. Do not make other people uncomfortable. Don't ever even use personal name. I mean, you use your own name. It's like it's, I'm Kathy to my kids at work. They don't call me mom at work. None of us use family names. We use our first names always. <clears throat> I think it's important that most of our clients, when they are with us, don't even think of us as family. We are professionals, and we are talking to them as professionals, and we're not a little click. And I think that is just so important for sustainability. Right, and, and I'm actually a little bit stunned by the statistics you share, although, you know, knowing, uh, you know, the kind of the current generation, I, I think those statistics will even go down further uh, because of perhaps not valuing uh, what a family tradition within a business or, or the success that they have attained and, and wanting, you know, to carry that on. Um, but but let's let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about 
what makes family businesses successful. And, and in the next chapter, you talk about protecting values and keeping the tabs on the truth. And, and you know, the values that we bring to the table in any job that we have and in any leadership role are those that we were uh, instilled uh, mostly within our family. So one would expect a family-owned business to have that basis of family values. So talk to me a little bit about that. I think that the values that people bring into a business make such an important difference in terms of what can I trust you to do? How much can I allow you to go out with that big client and not blow it because of something you would do that wouldn't fit our culture? When I first brought in family members, what I knew was they have my back, not just in the sense of supporting what I would say in a deal, but in supporting the culture and the values of what I'm trying to do with clients and with other employees. When you have family members who share values, you don't have to worry about some of the niceties of, of being in a situation where you have to ask for it. They just give you that support. It's an amazingly wonderful way of working. There's a certain joy in that knowing that you're out there for the same reason, for the same purpose. You get that with non-family members over time. And we have a lot of employees who've been with us over 20 years. But it took a lot of years before I had the absolute same confidence in their, their values as I did when I brought family members in. I think it's vitally important that we be who we are and say who we are to everybody and have them join us with those values. But you don't have to wait to be sure it happens when you bring in the right family member. And not every family member is the right one. (laughs) Amen to that one. (laughs) One of the other things that we had uh, talked about before we got on the air is that for uh, the first 10 years of my company, and I've had my company for 20 years now, uh, the first 10, my husband really was uh, all, all things administration. So uh, bookkeeping, banking, legal, uh, you know, managing our subcontractors uh, because I had a consulting firm and so we had a lot of subs. Um, and he did all of those things not because he was particularly good at them, he did them because he didn't really want to pay somebody else to do them, which is, I think, how a lot of family businesses evolve. And so once he ended up leaving the business, and he's actually been um, you know, in, in a, a sales role as an employee of someone uh, for the last five years, and that has been you know, just the best time because he's got his own world, first of all. Right. It used to be that we got up, you know, got the kids off to school, went to the office, were together all day, came home at the end of the day, were together all the time. And that's just, you know, well, for, at least for us, it wasn't healthy. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I'm now on the other side of that, of, of actually uh, taking him off of the ownership of everything uh, because uh, there were some some issues that arose from having us both uh, as members of the LLC, and I, I won't, won't go into all of that. But I actually had to make him stop looking at the bank accounts 
because I, I couldn't run the business the way I needed to to grow the company. Um, so, you know, let, let, let's get back a little bit to, you know, we had the same family values, but, but there were difficulties in, in never being able to leave work. And, and the next chapter you talk about how, how hard should you work. And when you're together 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, and, you know, work never seems to go away. Well, I believe very strongly that business is business, that's why we gave it the title, and family is family. For us, family always comes first. But when we're at work in the business situation, we don't bring up family issues. If there's a family issue that is important, go outside, talk about it off-site. Don't bring it to the office if you can possibly avoid it. By the same token, just to the point you were making, do not talk business at home at night. Our rule of thumb with the family has been we will not try to solve business problems at home. When we leave the office, we go home, we'll talk about anything else but business. Now, we might talk about some fun things that happen, some fun stories. We might talk, in our case, about our mission, our philosophy, but we don't try to solve a, a problem. And right. that has served us very, very well. There have been times when we've been almost screaming mad at each other at the office over some big decision where we had different opinions. And so we're arguing back and forth, and then we walk out the door and go to a family birthday party and hug each other. And you would never know that we'd had that kind of day at the office. <laughs> Well, you know, you talk a little bit later in the book about boundaries and and that you will have a better family-owned business if if you actually have those boundaries clearly defined and in place. And, you know, I, I think it really has to do with what you just described uh, in that story. And, uh, you know, I, I think my story with my husband wasn't so much about the boundaries of, of the 24-hour-a-day thing. It was that we had different philosophies about how to run the business. And even though I, I did trust him, which is another one of the topics that you uh, you interject here and, and banking on that trust that you have, um, but, but uh, really, really setting those boundaries of – that you need to behave like a business. And I, I love the title of the book because I, I think that's where we we fell down the most is that I didn't demand of him the same level of professionalism that I would have in a CFO or a VP of administration. Yeah. Um, he and was one still of... my husband. And, I, and I, I, didn't, I didn't say the hard things that I needed to say. Sometimes one of the hardest things to say is get out of my way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm the CEO or I'm the decision maker on this. And so we try to carve out areas of responsibility. And that made it so much easier when it came time for me to step down and turn the business over to my son and daughter. My son is now the CEO and he's a lawyer and he went to Wharton and he has all this great background. But I came up entrepreneurially. I I see things differently and the two of us often will disagree he'll say well the legal issues here are and I'll say I don't care we got to help those people and my, you know he wouldn't say mom Kathy 
we can't do that. And I'll say, don't tell me can't. <laughs> so right. we play our roles, we say it back and forth, and then I know if it is a legal decision, he does have the final say. And no matter how that might bother me, I would say, okay, you make the call. I'll make the point that I need to make, but it's his call. And we do that in every area of the business. Who has the final say? It's my intellectual property. I have to say when it comes to if we're going to change a part of one of our programs. But I am not in charge of marketing or sales. Amy makes those final decisions. That's helped us a lot. Yeah, that that's really really important. But you know, at the same time, our our challenges were that that um, we we had clearly defined roles. <laughs> that that was not a problem. The problem was he didn't have the background and skill set to fill that role, and I I didn't have the strength to stand up and say, look, uh, we really need for you to go off and get a job so that we can afford to pay the right person yeah. to be in the role yeah. that you're playing, <laughs> right? And, and you know, at the, at the time, he was getting, he was nearing 60 and, you know, thought that he couldn't go out and get a job. And, and you know, as it turns out, the last five years have been the most wonderful of our marriage and of our collective businesses. Mine, mine that I still own 100% and his that where he is now working for somebody but just making an amazing amount of money and and that happened when he was 61 so you know the the story uh of being afraid to tell him that he needed to go out and get a job actually turned out quite well because uh after the financial crisis it you know it, it just had to happen among our clients i would say what you're just talking about has been a key factor the fear of dealing with reality is is such a um, mistake if you let the fear overcome your speaking about it openly and dealing with it. If it's not working right, it's to nobody's benefit to keep the family member involved or involved right. in the same way. And we have found over and over with our clients, when we sit down with them and just ask questions and get them all in the same room listening to the questions, the answers become so much more clear to them. Yeah. Another thing that happens a lot when we start dealing with family birth order and with gender, there are so many biases within a yeah. family, not just between husband and wife, but among siblings and you get into this situation where, oh, dad's too old to do that, or, oh, she's the youngest, she'll never be the CEO. And we have to deal with the reality of what is each person's unique strength? What were they meant to do? What are their instinctive abilities? What are they good at instead right. of what birth order are they? This whole right. birth order thing is bunk. There's no scientific evidence to support anything being said about birth order besides a little uh, the attention issues but certainly not abilities right right well as the youngest of 3 i can uh, corroborate that uh, <laughs> because i i am definitely the go-getter in the family and the only one who would ever have risen uh, to ceo level not because of intelligence again i mean i've got two very very bright sisters uh, you know, but one's a nurse and the other one, you know, works in the university uh, world. 
And uh, I was the one who had all the ambition, right? So one of the chapters that, that I find fascinating is, is the one that talks about inciting next-generation ambition. Yeah, share that that's with probably my favorite chapter. I've been able to now look at three generations. I started the business 41 years ago, and I've watched kids and grandkids now in the business coming in and out. My rule of thumb is you can never come into the family business until you've gone somewhere else and succeeded. That's been true of my mm-hmm. kids. That's been true of the grandkids. I think everybody needs to have a measure of themselves outside the family to know they can succeed elsewhere, and it's not just because they're family that they can come in and do well. So that's one guideline I strongly recommend people adhere to. Then I think there is just this notion that in a family business, it's easier somehow uh, because it's family, and the truth is it's harder. There are more levels that you have to be aware of. There's, there's more thinking that goes into the what-if scenarios. What if I do this and I hurt the family economic security? What if I don't do that and I don't give this kid a chance to grow? I try to give every employee, family or non-family member, as many opportunities as possible. And what I say to my clients is, you will never know how far someone can go until you send them out into the distance and see what they do with the opportunity. Mm. And don't keep it for yourself. You may be great at making the sale, but you want others to be as good as you are. If you don't do that, then you'll never have that transition where you can leave. I, I just think building the capabilities building actually upon the capabilities of the next generation and the one after that and after that is that sustainability. Right. Right. Well, I I love that philosophy and, uh, you know, it it just makes total, total sense. So uh, we talked a little about uh, a little bit about knowing when teams won't work, right? When you've got the wrong person, uh, even though they might be right for some other slot. And, and I, in my consulting, have an exercise that I take people through uh, called Love, Hate, Do Well, Do Badly. And it's a great team exercise because when you self-assess what you love and do well or what you hate and do well, which is probably the most common thing in business, um, or something that you love and you actually do it badly, which you know is where people don't want to tell it like it is, right? Um, but going through that exercise and self-assessing, when you've got family members in the room, they can say, you know what, you actually really are good at this. You think that you're not, but this is a strength of yours. And so it's a really great way to ferret that out. So tell me some of the things that you do when you – uh, come in and you observe a team that isn't working well together. How do, how do you work through all of that? And then, and then how do you work, orchestrate the transition that has to happen when you're moving people or when somebody really needs to leave the business? For me, it's two-pronged. I started seeing all these issues of teams you know, 30, 40 years ago and started working on an assessment that now has been scientifically validated 
we can see that it takes different instinctive strengths to build a team that has a diverse approach and, and has different different ways of solving problems. So what we need is that conative. Conative is the word for acting on instincts. It's a third part of the brain. So in my brain research around this whole issue of instincts, I've seen there's a formula for synergy. And that formula is that you must have people who have differences and who can present and argue for their point of view with people who differ with them and do it in a constructive, respectful way, bring synergy. Too many companies try to fit together people who are alike in their point of views, alike in their instinctive approaches, because it's comfortable at first, but it gets so comfortable that you've got inertia, that everybody's sitting around saying, yeah, that feels good, yeah, that's right, well, sure, let's do that again. We can tell with the data we collect with our assessments when it's not going to work. So I've got the data. That's great. But the other side of this equation is the eyeball test, sitting there and looking at people and judging whether there's that respect for one another. I'll I'll never forget, and I probably shouldn't use the name of this company, but I will because I (laughs) those people are the same people aren't in the room there, but it, it happened to be. Coca-Cola. I'm sitting with a a room full of very senior level people at Coca-Cola, and I have never seen greater disrespect than among this group of people. And I said to them, you know, I don't care what my other data says. I don't care what you tell me. You don't like each other. You don't respect each other. Right. What are we doing having a conversation about business analytics? When the basic issue is, I don't see any trust here. And then I stopped the seminar and I said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to walk out of the room. I'm going to give you a half an hour. And when you come back, I want to know, do you like each other enough to even bother with the rest of this seminar? I came back in the room and obviously there had been tears. Obviously people were red in the face. They were teary eyed and they looked at me and they said, we've worked it out. We do want your help. We're amazed that you saw what you saw. But in essence, if we hadn't done that, I don't think anything else would have mattered. Now, when you're doing that in a family business, you have to be very careful that you're not saying the problem is just among family members. It's often not. There's a mistaken assumption that the family people have disagreements among themselves, the non-family don't. No, it's it's often just as much the non-family. So I believe in bringing it out, put it on the table and talk about it. Right. So when, when you do find out uh, that someone does need to leave, right, and, and not just reallocating work to the place where it is something that you love and do well, right, but, but you actually do need to make a change, and whether that change is at senior leadership or or mid-levels of the company. Um, If somebody actually does have to leave, how do you do that in a graceful way? The very best way is openness, honesty, and talking with respect about the person's innate abilities. So we sit down with our clients and say, 
Every one of you is perfectly capable of creative problem solving. Every one of you has these instinct-based gifts and abilities that you could use. When you're not in the right job, when you're not given the right opportunities, when you don't feel safe doing it, is the time that we should talk about solutions. And one of the solutions that we'll put on the table right away is maybe this isn't the right place for you, the right job for you, the right situation. That's always going to be on the table. And if it's always there, then it's never the big scary thing that might be lurking in the background. So we're always talking about, is this the right position for you? Is there a place that would be better? And if there are problems, that is part of what we could do about it. If you are open as that always being a possibility, it just isn't as scary. And everybody always needs to know you don't have a lifetime guarantee of a job here. Right, right. Well, does that and, make sense to and you? It, it absolutely does. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I just remembered another uh, family-owned company uh, that I did consulting work for uh, very early in my career, and that was with Carlson Companies. And I was there uh, on, on a very large consulting project when they were building a new um, digital platform in the late 90s. And the company was just transitioning to uh, moving non-family members into board roles and into uh, leadership positions. And, you know, I think the, the thing I'd like for you to leave us with, uh, because we are, are getting near the end of our time here, is if you are a, a talented executive inside a family-owned and run company and you really want an opportunity and a shot at running things, um, is there hope for working through the family dynamics and really being seen as the best one for the job? Um, because I, I know a number of people who are in family-owned businesses now, and and I just I want to leave them with some hope that if there is dysfunction in the family, that there are companies like your company who can come in and, and work through that dysfunction, uh, and that uh, they don't have to necessarily leave to get that leadership role that they've always wanted. Well, first of all, whether you know it or not, consciously, 70% of the people you know work in family-owned businesses. Many of the major networks are family-owned. Mm. Many of the major hotels, um, retail chains. It's just amazing how many companies are family-owned, and you don't think of it that way right. because they don't wear it on their sleeve. And particularly when they get very large, you, you tend to forget it. What I've found is there's always a certain level of fear with a family business about should I be here or should I get out? I would say to most people who are working inside a family business, you have a greater opportunity to make a difference, a big difference for not only the business, but the family people who will benefit from your efforts. So just as there's a double jeopardy with problems, there's a double sense of joy and thrill when you make those differences. I would say whether you're a family member or not in a family-owned company, my experience is most family-owned businesses 
have the same leadership needs as any other business. And because it's such a competitive world, yes, you have an opportunity. You prove your strength. And leaders in these businesses are looking for people they can count on. So you ought not to think you can't do it. The only time you should be worried, and we talk about this in the book, is when you see that the family-owned business is being run somewhat like a circus and nobody's really watching the timing. And, you know, one of the family-owned businesses that just went out of business was Ringling Brothers. You can't count on anything lasting forever. You've got to look around you and say, are the people who are running this serious-minded want to succeed in the business, or are they doing it just to make money? That's the biggest danger, is if they're just running the business so they can sell it and go off and have lovely vacations. That's not a real business. That's just an economic play. So separate those in your mind, and you'll be okay. Right. Well, Kathy, it has just been delightful uh, to talk to you about this uh, this topic that can be a- actually a, a fairly challenging topic, uh, both for family members and those those who are outside. And so, what we've been talking about is balancing the benefits and burdens of a family-owned business. The book is called "Business Is Business." Reality checks for family-owned companies, and we've been talking with author Kathy Colby. Uh, Kathy, can you just let folks uh, know how to find you, how to follow you, uh, how to connect with uh, Colby if they need uh, some help on this uh, particular topic? Certainly. We'd love to help. First of all, Colby is K-O-L-B-E, and I'm Kathy with a K. I'm very visible on Twitter as Kathy Colby. I'm Certainly, you can find us by going to Colby.com where you'll see all kinds of things that we're doing. And then there's also Businesses Business has a website. So all those places, the book is available, excuse me, the book is available on Amazon and in other bookstores. So if you have any problem whatsoever, just email me at kcolby at colby.com. Fabulous. Kathy, thank you so much, and I hope you have a wonderful day. And again, for those who are in family-owned businesses or are thinking about getting into business with a family member, you need to read this book. It will be game-changing for you. It's called Business is Business. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Game Changer, Ideas, Inspiration, Innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.